So today we're carrying on our series, which is Elect Exiles, and we're working our way through the book of 1 Peter. So if you're new, if you're just joining us halfway through, or probably more than halfway through this, or just need a recap, Peter's writing this letter to non-Jewish Christians in the Roman provinces of North Asia Minor, which we now know as Turkey. And uh, other letters in the New Testament written by uh, Paul are addressing maybe false doctrines or challenging specific behaviours that were going on in the church. But that's not the reason why Peter wrote this letter. He's writing it to Christians who were a misunderstood minority and they were living under a different rule. And because of that, because they were taking a stand for God and living as Christians, they were being persecuted for their faith. So this is a letter of encouragement to keep going, to keep persevering, not to give up in the light of the difficulties they faced. Life was hard and it's into this context that Peter is writing to encourage them not to lose sight of the bigger picture and not to lose hope that they have in Jesus. And I'm sure there's theologians that would kind of summarize it differently, but that is my summary of 1 Peter so far. And uh, we're going to be reading from chapter 4, and at the beginning of chapter 4, the passage that we're reading today, Peter is encouraging these Christians to keep their eyes focused on Jesus, to enable them to do two things. First, to respond to the unjust suffering by continuing to make godly choices, by continuing to live God's way. And secondly, encouraging them as a family of God together to live in such a way as to point others to Jesus and make him known in a culture that was hostile to the Christian faith. So we're going to read um, 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human uh, desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body but live according to God in regards to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, labor each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. 
And this passage, right back in verse 1, it starts with the word, therefore, which tells us that we can't just read these words in isolation, but we need to remind ourselves of what Peter has already said. And what was previously stated is then the motivation and the reason for the instructions that follow at the beginning of chapter 4. So if we just go back to the end of chapter 3, and just on the screen there, at the end of chapter 3, the verses preceding this, Peter is reminding them that Jesus died in their place. The righteous for the unrighteous in order to reconcile them to God. And that even though he was killed, he was resurrected to new life. And he's seated now at God's right hand, and all authority and all powers are in submission to him. This is the gospel. And this is what God has already done on their behalf. And so before Peter encourages them in how they are to live God's way, he reminds them of what Jesus has already done for them. He reminds them of the grace of God demonstrated through his willingness to die for them and the the righteous for the unrighteous. And the gospel is always the starting point. It's all about the gospel And it's all about Jesus' obedience rather than our obedience. And when we grasp all that Jesus has done for us, when we understand the gospel, it changes our hearts. It's the grace of God that changes us. So that when Peter then says, and this is the way you live, we do it not out of fear, but out of faith. And we don't do it out of guilt but we do out of gratitude for what God has already done. And this is a pattern that we see throughout the Bible. The obligations of God's law are always grounded in declarations of God's gospel, of God's grace. So when we read verse 1, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. And Peter's saying, knowing that Jesus experienced suffering and death on your behalf, knowing that Jesus died in your place, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to reconcile you to God, knowing that death was defeated when Jesus rose again, knowing that Jesus is now at the right hand and all authority and all powers are in submission to him, Reminding yourself of all this, arm yourself with this fact and have the same attitude that Jesus did. Don't just say, yeah, I believe Jesus died, I believe he rose again. Because this is more than believing that, you know, something historical happened. Peter's encouraging, arm yourself, do something active with this truth. And if you picture a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier dressed for battle would have their weapons to go into battle. They'd have their uniform, their shield to protect them from the enemy. And we know that we are in a spiritual battle. And the way to prepare ourselves for the battle is to take hold of gospel truth 
and arm ourselves with the truth of what has already been achieved on our behalf through Jesus. And remember, he's speaking to uh, Christians who were unjustly suffering. They were suffering for their faith. And if we're to endure unjust suffering, if we're to stand firm when others reject us because of our faith or mistreat us, then we need to stand firm in the same way uh, and have the same way of thinking that Jesus did. Jesus didn't give up when he was mocked and ridiculed. And even when he faced death, he refused to submit to earthly authorities. Jesus suffered unjustly, and he warned his disciples that they would face opposition too. In uh, the book of John, John 15, 19, Jesus said to them, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And uh, Paul warned Timothy, everyone who wants to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, these are not the verses that you uh, print out on a, fr- uh, a fridge magnet or a little coffee cup and you necessarily have and look at every day to remind yourself of. They're the ones that we probably would prefer to ignore. And there are other verses too reminding us that when we take a stand for God, when we live his way, when we declare his ways, there will be some who will respond positively. We're pointing people to Jesus. But there's some who will take offense and they will dislike us for the stand that we take. So why did Jesus uh, warn his disciples the world would hate them? So they weren't surprised when it happened. He was treated that way. He knew that his disciples would be treated that way. And Peter, in his letter, is encouraging us to remember the gospel and to have the same attitude as Jesus did to prepare for battle. People can have different responses to the same events according to what they believe and what they focus their thinking on. So somebody could go through suffering and real difficulties and think, well, I'm suffering. Therefore, God doesn't care. God has abandoned me. If God loved me, God would not allow me to go through this. And when we think like that, then we lose confidence in God. We think, you know, well, if God doesn't love us, if God doesn't care, then what's the point of praying? What's the point in asking for his help? We, can't, we lose our confidence. We lose our hope. If we go through difficulties and suffering and remind ourselves that Jesus suffered too, if we remind ourselves he didn't have to do that, but he chose to do it for our sakes, if we remind ourselves that he knows what it is to be in physical pain, he knows what it is to be rejected, he understands what it's like to be treated unjustly, and he endured it all because he had in mind something far greater, a bigger goal, something much more precious, knowing that his suffering, through his suffering, we would be reconciled to him and set free from the grip that sin has over our lives. And when we remind ourselves of this truth, we can run to God knowing that he cares, he understands and that he wants to help us in our time of need. 
We come with confidence, knowing that unjust suffering is not an indication of God's lack of care, but that we are being treated just as he was. And we have a hope beyond the present circumstances, a hope that no one can take away because it was brought with the blood of Jesus. So in verse 1, it continues, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And it's not stating that whoever suffers for their faith is sinless. Don't suddenly become perfect if you're having a hard time or people are persecuting you. But a willingness to persevere despite unjust suffering indicates a determination not to give in to sin. It's a sign that they've chosen Jesus over that. It's saying, I'd rather suffer and live for God than return to my old way and deny what Jesus has done for me. Knowing Jesus is far more precious than any temporary reward or relief that sin may offer. And in verse 2, it's an active choice, a daily choice to live the rest of our lives God's way rather than submit to temptation. And remember, Peter's writing to, to Christians who weren't Jews, um, <clears throat> who weren't Jews who'd then been converted to Christianity. They were Gentiles. Once they lived a, pa- a pagan, godless lifestyle, but this is not who they are now. Now they're children of God. Once we're born again, we're new creations. We're living for a new purpose. And when that happens, we should no longer want the same things. Instead, seeking to satisfy ourselves, we long to please God. There's a different motivation in how we live our lives out because we're different. We're no longer alienated from God. We're clothed in his righteousness. And Peter isn't reminding them of their past life to condemn them. He's appealing them not to return to their previous ways, especially when they're under pressure because they're living differently. And sin has a way of enticing us because it seems appealing. And the way to hate sin is to think about what Jesus did for us on the cross. We arm ourselves with the truth of the gospel. Once we were slaves to our own desires... But Jesus has overcome the power of sin. And it's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that lives in us. Earthly desires may still exist and still be tempting, but we are not slaves to them anymore. Our battle with sin and our choice to live God's way comes from an understanding of our new identity in Christ and gratitude for the way that God has lavished his love on us. Verse 4 to 6, it says, They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regards to the spirit. And Peter's warning them that unbelievers will be surprised, maybe even astonished, when they see Christians living a new way. And because they live such different lives, they won't always be popular. 
And it's another reminder to them that they're, you know, the exiles, their earth is not their permanent residence. They have a, a citizenship somewhere else. They no longer share the same values and aspirations as others around them. And our lives demonstrate what is of value and importance to us. And hopefully our lives demonstrate the difference God, uh, Jesus has made to us. Whether that's how we choose to spend our money or the way we serve with our time or the way we use our possessions to bless others. It might be the confidence that we demonstrate, you know, what, preferring to trust in God's provision and care and by choosing not to participate or not to do certain activities. But we, we choose to trust that God's going to meet our needs instead. And imagine, imagine in your workplace, there's a Christian who acts with the greatest of integrity in all they do. And you may think this is a very admirable characteristic, and it is. But imagine everybody else in this place of work is corrupt. And they're out to cut corners, and they're out to make money fast, regardless of the consequences for anyone else. And that person of integrity soon ceases to be somebody to be admired. Very quickly, that person of integrity becomes a liability. Because when everybody's operating in the same corrupt way, it's really easy to convince yourself, well, it's okay. It's okay if I just take that and it doesn't belong to me. It's okay if I have extra lunch break. It's okay if I don't do all my work and I, and I knock off early. It's okay if I take that thing home. It's okay because everybody else does it. But that one person that doesn't stands out and kind of that constant reminder to others that it isn't right. And the easiest thing to do is to alienate them or to find ways of discrediting them. And acting God's way is not always easy. And when everyone else hates you for it, when you're ostracized for your opinions and actions, it can make it even harder. But what an amazing witness whether people admire or reject, taking a stand and living for God is a powerful witness of how important he is to us in our hearts and in our lives. And so Peter's reminding them that those who mock and ridicule and persecute Christians for their faith will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And from a skeptic's point of view, they might be saying, well, why, why bother being a Christian? You know, you're probably going to suffer more than others. You're denying yourself a lot of fun by not doing the things that, you know, we do. And in the end, you're going to die, just like we do. You might as well enjoy life now. But the reason that argument doesn't work is because we know there is a resurrection. We know that there is life beyond this life. And as Christians, we're not afraid of judgment. We know our sins are forgiven and our future in eternity is secure. We're going to read verses 7 to 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides 
so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And these verses are a shift from how we respond to unbelievers to how believers uh, need to relate to one another within the family of God. And Peter starts again by saying the end is near. And it doesn't mean that Peter was expecting Jesus to return imminently. And it's not for us to speculate when that might happen. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We also don't know when we're going to die. But the reality is either Jesus will come back or we will die. One of those things will happen. And the reality of that should motivate us into action to make our lives count. The end is near. Therefore, that word again, because the end is near, the reality of Jesus' return and the brevity of life on earth compared to eternity is the reason and motivator to provoke us to do the other things, to pray, to love one another, to be hospitable, to use our gifts for the good of one another. And this reality helps us to be alert and sober-minded, which is what it's really saying is help us to live realistically, help us to think clearly. And it's our clear thinking that motivates us to pray for others to come to know God and encounter his love and forgiveness. It spurs us on. We want others to know him too. And it also motivates us to pray that we'll be faithful that we won't give up, that we'll make the right choices, live in ways to honour God and make him known. And as well as praying, it motivates us to love one another deeply. The way we love one another is evidence to an unbelieving world that we are followers of Jesus. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The way we live our lives and the way we treat one another displays the character of God to a world that doesn't know him. And again, it's a demonstration of our hope in Jesus. And Peter hones in on one particular aspect. Love covers a multitude of sins. And this isn't an encouragement to ignore sin and not to take it seriously. We're called to be holy. We're called to live God's way. In Proverbs 10 verse 12, it says, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all wrongs. And when we choose to love deeply, we're not looking for other people's faults, but we're choosing to think the best of other people. And when we choose to love deeply, there's a readiness for us to forgive rather than ruminating over how wrong we feel we've been done. We don't have to fight back when other people let us down. Church is made up of imperfect people. It's not an excuse, but it is a reality. And, you know, it's, it's a reality that at some point, if you stick around church long enough someone is going to let you down or somebody is not going to do the thing that you think they should do or somebody is going to cause offence and hopefully that is going to be unintentional. But we're not perfect. 
we get things wrong. And church unity is important. And so regardless of how other people act towards us, we can choose to see other people the way Jesus does. We can choose to respond and we can choose to love people as Jesus loves us. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Why should we be kind and compassionate to one another? Why should we forgive others? Because this is the way God has treated us. We only respond the same way as we remind ourselves of what God has first done for us. The obligations of God's law are always grounded in declarations of God's gospel. This is what Jesus did. Therefore, this is what you do. And 1 John 3.16, it says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. He makes the way by laying down his life and he sets the example for us to follow. Jesus is always the initiator. It's always the gospel that motivates our godly living. And it's always the gospel that enables us to serve God by serving one another. Verse 9 talks about hospitality and hospitality was vital for the early church. They met in each other's homes. So you had to invite people into your homes because that's where they gathered. And missionaries needed places to stay as they sought to advance the kingdom of God. And hospitality happened, but Peter is encouraging them, right attitude, do it out of love. It may cost time and resources, but remember why you're doing it. And verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you'd receive to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Peter's reminding us how much we need one another. God gives us gifts, not to make us individually look good, but for our common good, so that we can together build up the church, so that together we can encourage one another. And not everyone has the same gift, and that is the point. We need one another. If someone has a gift they're not using it, then the rest of us miss out. And that's not, that's not having a go at anyone. That, that's not condemnation. But that's just an encouragement to say we need one another. Everybody has a part to play. And Peter doesn't name all the gifts as Paul does. But he divides them into the function of speaking and serving. Those who have gifts of speaking, whether apostles or teachers or prophets or the gift of tongues or interpretation, should be careful to speak God's word and to be faithful to the gospel. It's not about promoting our own wisdom or agenda. They're to speak God's words, not their own. And those with serving gifts, whether it's giving or leading or mercy or gifts of healing or miracles or hospitality, operate on God's power supply, not on our own strength. Because it's easy to grow weary of serving. God wants us to renew us. God wants us to rely on him and his strength. God wants us to accomplish so much more and we accomplish so much more when we rely on him and allow him to work through us than we ever will relying on our own resources. And we show how valuable Jesus is to us when we demonstrate how we've given our lives for him in how we choose to live. 
And as we finish, let me ask you, how do you intend to live the rest of your life? In verse 2, it said they chose to live their lives for God. Whatever has marked your life so far, there is a decision on what the rest of your life will look like. If we want to live godly lives, if we want to live for the will of God, we need to remind ourselves of what motivates our obedience. It's not fear, but faith. Rather than guilt, gratitude. It starts with the gospel, it continues with the gospel, and it finishes with the gospel. We can't divorce what Jesus has done from how we choose to live the rest of our lives. We never progress from the gospel, and we need to keep reminding ourselves of the gospel's truths on a daily basis. And uh, just as the Christians, um, Peter wrote to, live in a society where they were increasingly intolerant of Christians. You know, we live in a society where there's often that backlash when we take a stand and we hold fast to the teachings of the Bible. And we need to arm ourselves. And that means we take hold and we place front and center the truth of the gospel every day. We remind ourselves not only of Jesus' death, but how he lived. How did Jesus respond to being mistreated and ridiculed and tempted? How did Jesus respond to false accusations? How did Jesus treat those who rejected him? Even those that he would have said were friends and they'd never leave him, but they ended up letting him down. It's about allowing the gospel to shape how we view life rather than letting life shape how we perceive God. Let's take Jesus' example and arm ourselves with the same attitude. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to empower us and make us more like Jesus in our attitude and thinking. This is how we get to live lives that are pleasing and honouring to him. And I just want to encourage you, if you are part of Grace Church, you have a role to play And uh, it's easy when you're kind of part of a bigger site like Chichester to think, oh yeah, all the jobs are done. You know, I'm not needed. I'm not needed here. But you are. And your part might look very different to the part that other people play. And, And that's okay. But you are needed. You are a part of us. And you have a role to play. And maybe it's outside your comfort zone. But God encourages us to rely on him and not... Uh, operate in our own strength or power but in his and I just want to remind you again that the gospel is power the gospel is meets our needs whatever that need is whatever we're doing we're not doing it to impress God we don't need to impress God God has already done everything for us but we can do things in him's strength and it's Jesus who enables us to make those choices and live a life that is honouring to him. And the band have very quietly come up behind me and uh, we are going to respond by singing and declaring the grace and goodness of God.